Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on October 28th, 2021. Amber Grant is a PhD candidate in the Environmental Applied Science and Management Program at X University, formerly known as Ryerson University. Her doctoral research focuses on examining environmental justice in urban forest management and decision-making in the United States. Most recently, Amber has been working in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to investigate how environmental justice is being pursued and implemented in community tree planting programs and practice. Amber has also worked with Dr. Andrew Millward and his Urban Forest Research and Ecological Disturbance Group for the last seven years, conducting interdisciplinary research regarding urban forest function, ecological change, and human interactions with urban nature. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Amber. We're delighted you could be with us this morning. And we have so many questions to ask you. Are you ready? Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited (laughs) to be here. Thanks so much for having me. We want to find out a little bit about your background before we delve into the big stuff. Tell us how you got to where you are and where you're headed. Yeah, thanks. Well, right now, I'm a PhD a candidate in the Environmental Applied Science and Management Program at X University, which is formerly known as Ryerson University, which is based in Toronto. And there I work out of the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies with Dr. Andrew Millward and Dr. Sarah Edge, as well as Dr. Cheryl Tuluxing and Dr. Laura Roman, who's actually based here in Philadelphia at the U.S. Forest Service. And I guess prior to Doing my PhD, I was always really interested in urban trees and the environment more broadly. I grew up in, well, what Torontonians refer to as northern Ontario. I would say it's more central Ontario if you look at a map, but um, essentially a place where there's a large Indigenous population. My mom is a hunter and trapper, so, you know, and we grew up on a farm as well. So just kind of grew up in a Uh, in a household that was very uh, focused around caring about the planet. And yeah, I got involved in doing urban tree work in my undergrad and was always passionate about human rights and social justice and wanted to kind of blend those two ideas for my doctoral research, which is focused on examining environmental justice and urban forest management and decision-making. That's really amazing. Was that a working farm then, Amber? Yeah, it was more of a community farm. We had pigs and chickens growing up, but we didn't sell them or anything like that. It was more of like for the family and we would trade, you know, like a pig for a cow kind of thing or half a cow with the neighbors. It was more of like a community farm. Oh, lovely. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was fun growing up in that space. We need more of those. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was the 60s, Eva. I, I, I'm not sure those days are coming back, but maybe. <laughs> Just yesterday, there was a, a case, one in Spain, I'm not sure if you heard, there was a, a custody battle over a dog between a husband and wife. They had no children. There there was definitely, they had to split custody of the dog. And, and the gentleman who was on the radio telling the story, he said that we're going to see more of this justice for animals and uh, treating them more like humans rather than treating them as things or it's. And once, and I know, I remember hearing uh, Robin Kimmerer say, it's not an it, it's a living being and we need to treat it that way. And I, I totally agree with that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's Yeah, great. absolutely. Yeah. I think it's important to think about, you know, the idea of environmental justice is not just about humans for sure, but about the other non-human beings that we're sharing this, this space with. So it's great. Robin Wall Kimmerer is an excellent Indigenous scholar. Absolutely. So I've worked with students in, at Temple University with environmental justice and, and the idea of having and working towards equality for all through the environment is probably very new to a lot of people, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would, I would say it's uh, a newer topic, especially it's becoming, I think, more popularized now, but unfamiliar to, to a lot of folks still, I think. And the incorporation of that with a degree, for example, I had a student who was doing environmental justice and minoring in horticulture and doing his thesis and taking a look at step back and saying, you know, let's build a garden so that people can actually be empowered by having a central location where they can come to and be empowered that have been unempowered for such a long time. And how can we utilize this epicenter, if you will, like your farm, to allow people to vent their feelings, to be able to talk about injustices that have happened and utilize plants and animals and environment as a vehicle for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a really important aspect of uh, environmental justice and I'll admit not necessarily the exact kind of like focus on, on my work, but definitely I think, you know, sharing space with others and having spaces to communicate about hardship or um, experiences that they've had that may, maybe folks aren't always listening to are, are definitely really important for advancing any sort of equity and uh, healthy and safe environments for folks. Can you talk a little bit about some of the policies past and present where that created these injustices? Yeah, I think before we get there, I think it's still important to define maybe what environmental justice is, just because I think uh, then it kind of sets us all on the same page before getting into some of those like bigger ideas. But I think you know, environmental justice is a lot of things. It's obviously, it's a movement. It's been a part of the social justice movement for a long time. Um, you know, in the U.S., it's often talked about as having its roots within the civil rights movement and within the labor rights movement. Uh, of course, indigenous communities have been practicing it for uh, much longer than that even, but it's also a noun. It's a desired outcome by a lot of communities and individuals and it's a, it's a theory, it's a way uh, we can think about large-scale environmental problems like uh, the climate crisis, as well as smaller-scale problems like the inequitable distribution of trees and cities. And, you know, so for a long time, I think environmental justice has been defined as uh, everyone having access to 
a clean and healthy environment. But for, you know, more recent thinkers might think of having more procedural elements attached to environmental justice as well. So not just having an access to a clean and healthy environment, but what gets us there, which would, you know, be the fair treatment uh, and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race and income or any other identity marker with respect to the development and implementation, as well as the enforcements of environmental laws and policies and other regulations. And I think, you know, this more nuanced understanding of environmental justice about who's making decisions and how those decisions are made are really important. And that kind of leads into that more kind of historical thinking about, well, how did we get here? Um, what are some of those policies and practices? When we think about what, what does environmental injustice look like, uh, when we think about trees and cities as well, uh, we often might think of like, well, I've been to this one neighborhood that has a lot of trees and those trees are really big. You know, there's a lot of oaks, there's fancy London plane trees or things like that. And I've also been to a lot of communities or neighborhoods where there's no trees. You know, maybe I'll see some trees, maybe they're smaller in stature, maybe there's more invasives or ingrown trees like an Atlantis or colonia trees or things like that. I mean, obviously you might feel like these neighborhoods are much hotter. And I think, you know, for the last 20 years or so, this, this kind of phenomenon has been studied a lot by researchers. Where are trees in cities and where are they not? And does that correlate with different de demographics, for example? And research has kind of shown over the last 20 years that a lot more trees in wealthier white neighborhoods than there are in African-American or Black neighborhoods or Latino, Latina, Latinx, or Hispanic neighborhoods tend to have fewer trees as well. Yeah, these, these inequities are, are very visible, and that's why they've been studied for a long time. But I think, you know, there are two other important aspects of environmental justice that are more underexplored, which are those procedural and recognitional aspects of environmental justice, which is kind of where my own research is focused on. Thank you for that overview. I mean, you covered it all. The procedural component, can you talk a little bit about that? When I was looking at some of your presentations, my takeaway was the conversation I've had many times as a Philadelphia arborist is, question number one is from the homeowner, I need to get this tree removed. Who do I call? Question number two is, well, I'd like to think that question number two is how can I get a new tree? <laughs> but I think a lot of times people are relieved to have it gone and getting a new one isn't going to be an immediate priority. But am I right that that's kind of how procedural works in where you're counting on the city to provide the service and provide the information so that you can move forward in your neighborhood with tree removal, tree planting? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, that's certainly a large component of it. And I love that you kind of brought in your own experience there as an arborist and what you've, you know, experienced and getting like on the ground questions from folks about their trees and, and kind of questioning what are the processes involved. In urban forestry, I think procedural justice, the essence of it is considering whether members of the public have access to accurate information and resources related to urban trees. So, you know, things like, are we letting folks know about not just the benefits of trees, but also the potential burdens of trees as well? Are we, you know, clearly communicating with, with folks that trees, especially when they're new and first planted, need to be watered for the first two years? Is that honestly right. reported to them? Are, you know, are we communicating that there's various planting events, um, you know, or workshops that people can attend for free, hopefully, 
at different times in different locations around the city. And it also includes, I think, more um, about decision-making generally and whether or not that's fair and transparent and uh, whether folks are being engaged at different times in different languages, whether it's fair, accessible, things like that all go into making sure there's pr procedural justice and the process of determining where trees are going to be planted, how the current care structure is going for them, and what do they need to know, who's liable, all those sorts of things, and is it being honestly communicated to them or not. When you're talking about planting trees and who's responsible for what, the idea of having a park down the street may seem to some people to be easier than to have a tree in front of my house, especially on a small street. And the idea of not having a park in a neighborhood also talks about social injustice. If the houses are so tightly packed that you don't even consider having a park for people to go as a respite, then that's social injustice. The fact that we cram our cities because our ground is so valuable, we don't think of leaving that open space for that community. And if we just even change that thought process, we would be in a much better place from a social justice standpoint than we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, parks is all green space is part of this conversation, I think, and, and parks are very important to, to this conversation as well. It's not just about individual street trees in front of, in front of someone's house or you know, even trees in someone's backyard if they have one or the lack thereof. It's absolutely about, you know, do folks have, are they in proximity to green space? And, you know, when new green spaces are being designed, do they have a say in that? Um, maybe they, they do because it was posted on the city's website, but is it actually um, accessible to them? Is it free of jargon? And, you know, when I, let's say I do go to one of those events, how seriously is my opinion actually considered in, in the development of this new park? You know, is it just hearsay or is it just kind of a, formality that the city is involving particular communities or saying, you know, patting themselves on the back from time to time saying, oh, well, we went into this underrepresented community and did this work, but, you know, maybe you didn't take any of their suggestions or center their needs, right? Which is more that what we would call that recognitional aspect of urban forestry, which I think is the least considered and least practiced when we think about kind of the three main pillars of environmental justice. And uh, arguably a, a lot of folks, I, I think, since urban forestry has as like a discipline has had attracted more of like a scientific audience, I think some of the more social pieces as we talked about at the beginning are newer and are, uh, you know, folks are just wrestling with these ideas for the first time. But recognitional justice is really about whether the perspectives and experiences and knowledge of, of socially disadvantaged groups, as well as neglected groups. So what I mean by that is, you know, people of color or uh, low-income folks, renters, those who are using English as initial language, like refugees or under un undocumented folks, as well as, you know, those who just are living in neighborhoods that don't have trees, that don't have parks, that don't have ravine systems or access to green space. Are those folks being recognized and prioritized within urban forest decision-making and the planning and delivery of new parks or uh, new tree plantings, are, the, are those voices actually being considered? And are practitioners also, or those who are making decisions about these, are they considering what might have influenced their thinking as well from a historical perspective or from an institutional perspective about past policies or planning decisions that were made that might 
make people feel a certain way about actually having a new park in their neighborhood. Let's say if it wasn't cared for in the past or something like that. Those are all, I've been told, more controversial aspects of urban forestry that um, are, are making its way into the field, but uh, something that I'm particularly interested in. You talk about social justice and we, we think of adults, we talk about adults, but I also think that one of the things that's missing is the social justice for children. From an educational standpoint, you know, every school should have trees. Every school should have a playground. Every school should have green space so that children can feel that nurturing atmosphere before they become an adult and realize how important that is as a connector to community and social justice. Yeah, 100%. There's a lot of schoolyards in the city. I know that I've, you know, walked past them uh, here in Philadelphia. You know, and there's, they're just concrete slabs and there's there's no trees at all. And obviously that's got to be really hot in the warmer months of the school year. You know, folks playing outside, little children playing outside on those structures. And like you said, Eva, it's like, how do you kind of build that transformative kind of connection to a tree if, uh, if there's none on your schoolyard and then you go home and there's none in your in, on the street outside in front of your house or there's none in your backyard or you know, maybe you don't have a backyard and then, you know, where's the closest park? Maybe it's several blocks away and you don't get there often. So yeah, making you know, schoolyards a place where trees are planted and cared for and getting us the, the, the young children and students involved in, in the tree care work is so important to um, how they might care about trees in the future as well. Philadelphia, from the urban forestry standpoint, seems like in a lot of ways, it's doing its very best you know, with that conventional scrappy can-do attitude. You know, we have the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society's Tree Tender Program, which has done a great job for over 15 years, citizen training of arborists. We have Tree Plan Philly, and we have the Parks and Rec doing their thing. So in my mind, it always feels like the city is almost like an urban forestry laboratory. We're getting to see what works. We can see what doesn't work. And hey, there's another player here, which is the developers and what they're bringing to the equation, right? I saw a uh, recently demolished community garden on 52nd Street. So maybe it's over in your neighborhood in West Philly, uh, just uh, south of Parkside Avenue. Long time community garden with mature Camacypris and Thuya and Taxus. And so, Everything had been cut down. There's a new shopping center on one side. There's new housing on the other. And there was a handwritten sign with all this, these logs that said free firewood. And like this last little green space is now gone. So very complicated and multi-layered. You had actually told me the other day that one of our local banks is a big player in kind of keeping our fully parks and rec department well-financed. Yeah, that, that's something that, you know, I find as a Canadian, I guess, like, and not that Canada doesn't have this at all, like, obviously Canada does too, but just the uh, amount of private investment in, in government here and government projects and in, uh, in government staffing positions is is, is interesting. And um, I, I ought to imagine have an influence on, on the types of work that can happen, um, you know, and until trust is made between who that staffer is, perhaps, or the, the management of a particular department, let's say the, the Parks and Rec Department in Philadelphia, I think they have to establish a really strong relationship with those private funders who are funding staff members on their team in order for them to 
really want to do, I think, what they want to do in terms of their goals of whether it's environmentally justice focused or not, which I would say this, the city of Philadelphia is very driven to principles of environmental justice is certainly a core theme of their work. But I think, you know, it's important to question private investment and in, in, in public spaces, I think. And that's a, it's a complicated conversation, but something to be aware of. Yeah. Well, can I ask you who that bank is? Yeah, no, the, the TD Bank. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. TD Bank. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. And then, aren't, and then, aren't they Canadian? Yeah, that's the Toronto Dominion Bank. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's why you Just have a maple leaf on your flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I also know like Subaru has sponsored the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society for many years. And there's another good example. We need to have more companies make that happen. And also to be aware of those companies that we want to support that do that uh, so that we know that not only are we using that company as a as a bank or as a as a car dealer, but we also know that they're also supporting community activities. Yeah, obviously, given like our current economic system and the approach to the neoliberal state of the world and then having, you know, a lot, a lot of market and investment in, in the public sphere and things like that, I think it's important to, um, you know, support like organizations that are doing good work and also hold them accountable when they're not doing good work as well. Absolutely. So I think, you know, from a social justice perspective, you know, really, you know, questioning intention sometimes and, and when they're doing the wrong thing, using people power to push them in the right direction, because it can be naive to assume that it's always well-intentioned. Right. Well, so, and it's, yeah. it's like holding, holding people's feet over the fire. It's like, you know, having a child who goes astray and you bring them back in, you know, that kind of thing. That's what that reminds me of. And uh, I think that that whole, that whole piece is incredibly important. Yeah, the other example real quickly is one of the most vibrant communities in terms of uh, well-managed trees, new planting, maintenance, is the South Philly neighborhoods that surround the sports complex areas. So there's a sports complex district, and man, um, it, you can really tell, because they also handle sanitation issues. So all the row house neighborhoods down there south of Patterson Avenue are well taken care of by the professional sports teams in this town. And then we have the educational institutions, you know, um, Penn, LaSalle, Temple, University of the Sciences, that also infuse uh, some economic support at a pretty substantial scale. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with the sports teams being involved in tree care and, and or paying for that anyway. That's, that's great. Yeah. Amber, can you talk about uh, and anecdotally or whatever about how other cities are approaching their own issues with environmental justice or any standout stories you want to tell? Yeah. So I, I first want to, I do want to highlight the work that Philly's doing, just being, you yes, know, Philadelphia's doing, just, just being based here, of course. And I think it's a really unique city and that's what brought me here to do research. I think that besides having an advisor who's based here, uh, who told me how great Philadelphia was, you know, especially uh, in terms of advancing environmental justice or being aware of it, coming here and learning about programs like the Tree Tenders program was just, you know, mind blowing to me, uh, a program that's kind of become a model for many cities across the U.S. where uh, I guess just over 30 years ago now, uh, a woman by the name of Mindy Maslin created a program that was focused on training volunteers to go into their own neighborhoods, organize their communities, 
to plant trees. And of course, part of the program of training them was also training them about tree biology and teaching them how to properly plant and care for trees. And then kind of just passing along that knowledge to other folks in the community to then subsequently door knock, community organize, get street trees in the ground. And, you know, I've obviously heard really surprising stories where folks, you know, would actually be the ones to remove concrete from the sidewalks themselves in spaces that, you know, people might walk down it if they're from another city and be like, oh, there's no way a tree could be here because there's no pit for it. And, you know, there's a program in Philadelphia where they actually do remove the concrete from the sidewalks to get a street tree in the ground. And, and I think they do tend to prioritize more of that distributional side of environmental justice, which is to get trees into the ground where they don't exist. And I think that that's a program that I'm really fascinated by. Obviously, the city of Philadelphia has their tree filly program as well, where they give out free trees. And interestingly, when I finished my undergrad in Toronto, my first job was working to essentially replicate Tree Philly's model for the city of Toronto. And the city of Toronto adopted the Tree Philly program, which, like I said, is a program that gives out free trees in, in uh, neighborhoods that or tend, try to prioritize giving them to neighborhoods that don't have trees so folks can plant them in their front or backyards. So it kind of came full circle because I had met with Erica Finchman-Smith back in like 2014, 2015 when I finished my undergrad and now I'm here, you know, working with her again, uh, doing work on my PhD. So it's kind of full circle. But anyway, there's also, I want to highlight Seattle as a city um, that's been really motivated to prioritize, I would say, actually more the recognitional side of environmental justice, which they're focused on centering the perspectives of Indigenous and African-Americans in the city uh, in particular, they have a heightened sense of the impact of uh, redlining and other urban renewal policies that led to lower tree canopy cover in certain neighborhoods more than others tend to be uh, neighborhoods where Black and Indigenous folks and other people of color were living. And they just came out with their urban forest management plan in late 2020. Um, and if you take a look at it, it's really centered around uh, environmental justice and centering the, the needs and tailoring their actual goals of the plan to what these communities that essentially they don't have trees want, which to me makes good sense. That's really fascinating. And, you know, Mindy was our very first guest on our show when we first started. We love Mindy. And, you know, what's really unusual about Mindy is that she's really a social worker. She was a social worker. And the fact that she saw the connection between people and plants, trees and people, and the importance between those connections, I think was a, a huge foresight from her and how it affected all of us down the line with the program of tree tenders. And we have a couple other groups that I want to give a shout out to in Philadelphia, Philly tree people over in Kensington area who are doing an incredible job planting trees and working with children. That's an, another really wonderful uh, group. And also UC Green in uh, University City really has made a huge difference in Southwest Philly and West Philly, groups that all kind of sprang out from the Tree Tenders program. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I, I really appreciate the Tree Tenders program because it's it's also created a lot of, uh, you know, smaller nonprofits and work for folks, work for young people. Um, you know, it's trained folks to, or encourage people almost in a way to then become arborists to start their own businesses and things like that. And I think it's just a fantastic program for, in, in that sense. And 
I want to also underscore, because you said, you know, Mindy's a social worker. And, you know, one thing that's interesting between all the programs you just listed off, so uh, UC Green and uh, Philly Tree People, is that those are also run by folks with more of like a, a social work background. So Keisha Hewling, who runs UC Green, is a, is a, is a social worker as well. And Jacelyn Blank, who is now an arborist, but, you know, she's a professional in early childhood development and she, she's a teacher by day and works, works with children, like you said. So what I think is really interesting is the interdisciplinarity of urban forestry and how it's involving, you know, folks that are not just arborists anymore, are not just horticulturalists or, you know, interested in greening, but also are really great at communicating and talking with people. And I think that's kind of the future of the discipline to some extent with, of course, you got to know about trees as well too, but I do think it's a really important, important thing to highlight. One of the first conversations Eva and I had right as the podcast was taking off, wasn't it, uh, Eva, that we talked about the whole concept of Mother Earth and uh, the mothering of uh, getting these trees in the ground seems to have a very, a lot of great feminine energy. Well, yeah, and the, the other thing about that is that, you know, the idea of taking care of, you may not have a child, but if you take care of in the environment, you're taking care of children, you're taking care of animals, you're taking care of other people, adults. One of the things that we find in horticulture, especially that we see a transition from medical practitioners into horticulture, it's going from pampering or taking care of people that need help from a medical standpoint, and then they shift into horticulture, which is also taking care of. And if you're a nurturer, you're going to shift from one profession to another very seamlessly. It's just a different subject matter. The whole idea of that is crucial for a successful urban forest. The idea that there's interdisciplinary work going on, as you mentioned, I don't think we could have reached where we are right now with all of our tree organizations if we didn't start crossover disciplines. You know, we have to break out of that mold of, you know, siloed disciplines. Nothing works in a silo comfortably. It yeah. has to cross over. It has to cross over. And um, I, I know that uh, when I was studying in Europe, they they were very siloed. And I brought two pe two people from two different disciplines together and they were like looking at each other. They didn't know what to say. And I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, how could a, how could a person who, who um, does literature not understand someone who's in horticulture? Why aren't they talking to one another? You know? <laughs> I, yeah, I fully agree. Trees aren't just growing in, you know, in, in absence of people, right? Especially in cities when we're talking about urban trees there. They're growing around people and then in people's spaces. So, of course, that like, what comes with that is is a nuanced understanding of these kind of socio-ecological perspectives of, of trees, right? But yeah, 100%, definitely uh, interdisciplinary futures, I think, or transdisciplinary futures. Historically, now I'm, I'm from the Midwest, but we're all well familiar with the Row House neighborhood. And I, I think as a Chicagoan coming here for the first time, in the early 80s. It was, in terms of perception, what I was seeing architecturally and otherwise, how streets uh, and communities were laid out. You know, these were definitely homes for workers. These were definitely, you know, dad grabbing the lunch bucket and walking up to the factory. I'm wondering how many of these row house neighborhoods, not the 
bigger boulevards with a little bit of commercial, but the north, south, east, west row houses, I think those, uh, the frontages are about 15, 17 feet wide. Some of these neighborhoods I think were laid out never intending to have a tree out front. It takes me back to what Eva talked about earlier is, you know, the resourcefulness of eyeballing potential green space in the neighborhood that would pull the neighbors together and still give them all those wonderful benefits, mental health and otherwise, to congregate, you know, play checkers, play card games, listen to a ball game. Yeah, because, you know, in my mind as an arborist, I'm thinking, oh, well, sure, there's cool upright fastidious trees that we could plant on the 2700 block of north chadwick but in terms of efficient use of resources maybe it is you know moving it up around the corner and replicating like uh, so many latin american communities do with you know the town square the catholic church right there but everyone's out there hanging out on a on a summer night yeah i think yeah rethinking how we're that I'm referencing or I'm thinking about anyway, South Philadelphia, South Philly with, you know, the, the row houses, the classic working uh, class uh, row homes that clearly the, the space was not meant for a tree or, you know, folks who were building those spaces weren't thinking about necessarily having trees there at the time, perhaps. And now, you know, with the amount of cars in Philadelphia in particular and the fight for parking, you know, it's really kind of impossible to, to get a tree in on some of those streets. And, yeah, having more parks in proximity could offer somewhat of a solution in terms of some level of cooling, you know, maybe not direct level, but, you know, at least a space for folks to go and hang out, like you said. Yeah, and I think, you know, also maybe rethinking whether this this would be a really controversial conversation in Philadelphia, but does every street need two sides of parking on it, you know? Or, you know, rethinking how we might, you know, eventually one day there is no parking on some of those streets. Um, and there instead there's there's trees placed there and stuff. And I know that I'm no one would take me seriously by saying that necessarily here, but you know, it is it is potentially a future for for those spaces. I always had in my mind if I was a planner, I would put a parking garage, a public parking garage every so many blocks for the neighborhood so that all streets could all cars could be off the street anytime because they'd be protected from snow and rain and also utility vehicles and such. And then have your parks every so many blocks, still be able to have trees along your streets. And that to me would be an ideal community because you could still have a car. Nobody's gonna stop you from having a car, but it's in the parking garage. And you know, everyone who has a home there actually is contributing to that parking garage because you're keeping the streets clear of vehicles. It's a great idea. I mean, if you clear these tiny little row house streets of cars, then, oh, wow, Here, look at all this space we've just created. Not only could we uh, get a sitting garden planted, but you could also grow some vegetables and stuff. So now we're forecasting into the future. And I know uh, I read a piece on the future of arboriculture by David Bankston, uh, USDA Forest Service, and he's saying, there's going to be more and more driverless cars coming up the pike in short order. So people may be able to give up to a certain extent that privately owned car. I also think the pandemic did in a couple of those car share initiatives, you know, where you'd go to the SEPTA station and there'd be a car that you could rent for 
90 minutes or something like that. Yeah, that's it. That's another solution too. I was thinking, you know, my daughter has a house in South Philly. And uh, just the other day I said to her, you know, you have the two trees in the front of the house. And, you know, of course they said they were dirty, but then now they realize how important they are. And uh, her and her neighbor said, we don't mind cleaning up. It's, it's all the other trash that comes along down the street. And I said, why don't you lift one of the concrete slabs in your backyard and you could plant your fig tree there that you have in a container. And I said, and you don't have to worry about watering it as much. And uh, she goes, oh, I like that idea. I said, you know, if everybody lifted one concrete block in their backyard, you could put your trees in the back of the house and have some shade on the back side of your house. So many of the trees facing north and south, your south part of the house could actually be cooled that way. And uh, your north front, you don't have to worry about the north side and see what happens. We concentrate our trees in the front of the house not necessarily thinking that we could also think about the back of the house and how that could be utilized as a space for planting. Absolutely. Yeah, all these are are great ideas um, from you both. Absolutely. I'm also wondering, um, Amber, since you're ramping up your studies um, at uh, X University, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, it's it's, it's a colloquial name, I guess. Yeah, they're renaming so, the university right now. So. They're renaming it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, are there conferences c- coming up the pike since it's all on Zoom? And so often I, you know, find out about a conference that happened, you know, last week or something like that. But I remember when I was in college, the first urban forestry conference I went to was just eye-opening at, at every level for me. What are the conferences these days that students and practitioners might want to know about? Anything that you're going to be involved as as well in the in the next year or so? Yeah. So I mean, different conferences for different audiences. I think the more practitioner level, there's the um, it's it's run by Arbor Day Foundation, but it's like Partners in Community Forestry. I think is the name of the conference, and it's targeted at more arborists and practitioners and community foresters and things like that. And some academics do go to it. Me personally, I spend usually I, every year I go to the AAG or the Association of American Geographers, which is, you know, it's obviously a geography con- conference. It's, it's very huge. There's a session for literally everything and anything at that conference. But at that conference, there's a plethora of sessions called Trees in the City that attracts mostly academics. But over the last few years, it's actually a- attracting arborists and um, practitioners and and non-academics to that session as well. And this year I'm co-organizing and chairing a a panel discussion at that session about environmental justice and urban forest. So researchers like Christine Carmichael, who's done a lot of work in Detroit, looking at more procedural aspects around environmental justice is going to be on that panel. And uh, Lauren Nesbitt, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia, will be there as well, who's done you know, research on environmental equity in particular, and uh, looking at, again, distributional and procedural kind of context of environmental justice, as well as where we're bringing in some activists and practitioners to the panel as well, because I think it's important to diversify the space and not just have academics speaking to these real problems with the urban forest, but folks who have been on the front lines kind of expecting more from municipalities and nonprofits and things like that. So when we're all working together, then that that's how I think solutions come about. Oh, I think that you're absolutely right. The crossover is so important with pollination of 
events. I think that's great. Well, we are so thrilled that you could be with us today. We learned so much from you and we look forward to seeing more of your work down the line. We hope to have you back again. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and great to great to chat with you both about, about this topic. Amber, do you have a uh, favorite spirit tree? Do you have a tree that uh, you commune with, maybe wink at or pat when you walk? Oh my down gosh, the there's there's so there. I I love all trees, but I like them all for different reasons. I have a tattoo of a reddo on my arm. Oh, look so at you that. just go with the uh, with the easy. Um, I like reddo trees because <laughs> it's easy to explain, but. When I was first getting involved with urban forestry research, I, I work, I've been working with uh, Dr. Andrew Melward and uh, his urban forest research and ecological disturbance group on more scientific projects. So we, you know, we did a lot of studies on, on red oak trees at the time, and uh, I was felt deeply connected to the, to the group. And it was one of my first jobs that I was really, really passionate about. So I was younger then and decided to get that tattoo. But you know, I, I like I like uh, trees for for different reasons. So usually I tell that story, but you know, I always get folks to touch the dawn redwood trees and the ginkgos because I feel like they have fun leaves to touch and actually interact with. They're a different texture than than most other leaves. So I, I like pointing those out on the street. Good choices. Were you working with healthy red oaks up in Canada? Yeah. Where where were where were you? Well, we were looking at, yeah, so we were looking at um, essentially here, I guess there was a bunch of Bradford pear trees planted at some point in Philadelphia. There was a bunch of Norway maples planted in Toronto that kind of shaded in everywhere. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of parks that don't have any grass underneath because like, you know, such a dense canopy and different, uh, you know, streets that, that have the same sort of effect. But we were looking at how the kind of seeding in of Norway maples into natural ravine system influenced the growth of of red oak trees in particular in one of the ravines in East Toronto. So okay, little, little babies, <laughs> little baby red oaks, but. Nice. It gladdens my heart to hear that there's healthy red oaks in North America because we don't really get to see too many in the Delaware Valley. Uh, yeah, no, we have, we're lucky in Toronto. Yeah. We have a few, uh, not, not always red oaks. We have a couple white oaks, but no, they're more like bur oaks and swamp white oaks and things like that growing in the city. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us. I've really learned a lot about environmental justice and uh, man, I just hope that the movement continues and uh, we're a generation away from correcting some of these ills in so many of our big cities and small towns. I hope so. All the young people out there, they, they got to keep going because they're the future. Exactly. Thanks again, <laughs> Amber. Thanks, Amber. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, Hal. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
Thank <laughs> you.